The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and soon-to-be Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. Another exciting week on issues related to the law of the United States. Absolutely. And I'm going to give you the honors, Mitch, of introducing our guest today, who's also a co-host on our program. My pleasure. It's great to have Michael Cohen back with us. Michael is a constitutional law professor and business organizations professor at Monterey College of Law. He's an international lawyer with the law firm of Shepard Mullen. And I have a suspicion that Michael's going to have a few opinions related to the constitutionality of things going on in the United States just this week. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mitch. It's so great to be here. And I'm joining you all this morning from Washington, D.C., where I have to say uh, every day we wake up here in the nation's capital where we can visibly look straight down a five-mile stretch of the National Mall and see all three branches of government from one end to the other, um, uh, we wake up on pins and needles <laughs> just wondering how the interplay is going to take place. Not in my adult life have I experienced the modern tests to the separation of powers that we're witnessing in this era. Well, I'm glad to hear that there are, you can actually see all three branches are still standing this morning. They're still they're still there, you know. <laughs> they're made of they're made of stone, so you know they're kind of hard to break down. Each one of them thinks that uh, thinks they're on a pretty found uh, pretty firm foundation. Well, good morning, Michael Stephen here. Hello, Stephen. It's uh, so good to hear from you. You know, I I uh, it's no surprise that we want to talk about the recent case before the Ninth Circuit and the executive order and how it how it's going to be challenged, and your reference to the three branches of government, I think, is very, very apt and timely. And, you know, to get our discussion started this morning, I thought it would be a good idea to talk about what I like to call the power sources and the constitutional uh, safeguards and really what constitutional provisions are in play here when we talk about executive orders. And let me turn to you just to start with a bit of a background on the power of executive orders. Yeah. So 
the the Constitution has three primary articles and then three, I won't call them secondary articles, but following articles. And the three primary articles establish the branches of government. Article 1 establishes the Congress and the legislature and enumerates its powers. Article 2 establishes the executive branch of government and the president and simply states that the executive power uh, rests with the president. And Article 3 establishes our court systems. And what's really critical to understand, I think, at least for me always to remember, about that separation of powers is the design um, uh, stemmed uh, intentionally. The Constitution's three articles separated the powers. And we usually call that separation of powers, but they separated the powers from what? Someone might ask. What do you mean the Constitution separates the power? Well, in the rest of the world, in the rest of the entire world, at the time the nation was born, all power resided in a single human being in every other nation, a king or a queen. So separating the powers into branches of government was designed to create a world that checked the power of a single person. The entire Constitution is, in essence, not designed merely as a check and balance of powers by the branches against each other. Our Constitution was designed to ensure that the, the one place where, where power rests in a single individual, that one place could never really be exercised. The Constitution is a safeguard against executive power. It's not interesting, Michael. We hear, to histor- it. we hear historically, you know, we all heard the stories that you know, George Washington was offered the position of king. There was a great pressure for him to actually be king. He was a successful general. And you know, we think of that as kind of a historical story of George Washington being willing to, to not want to take that power. But, but many of us forget that it's more than him not just wanting to be king. It is the creation of these three branches of government that share the, the authority to make decisions under the Constitution. Right. right. And, and to Stephen's uh, question, Mitch, you know, absolutely, Mitch. And to Stephen's question, the, 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 the one thing that the Constitution did do as well is punt a lot of hard questions that nobody could answer because nobody could predict the future. And there was little consensus, frankly, on some of the details other than the mere separation. And the consequence of that with respect to the president's power is this. It's not defined. It has never been defined. And there's a substantial question as to what it is. Certain powers are set forth in the Constitution. Commander-in-chief of the Army. The duty to faithfully execute the laws that Congress passes and the Supreme Court interprets. Things like this are set out. But there is a substantial question and has been throughout constitutional history as to whether or not there is any inherent power in the office. Justice Black, in a very famous decision in the mid-20th century, uh, during the Korean War, uh, expressly in a uh, writing for the majority, but in a plurality uh, of many opinions, uh, Justice Black said, there's no inherent power. The notion 
of the president having any inherent power, any undefined power, any power that the president himself could define is completely contrary to the fabric of our nation and the safeguard against a tyrant or a king. Let me ask two two things on that because I find it just fascinating. So one, it is the is the idea that if if it's not written there, the the inherent power argument would be what? That if it's not written, well, you get to define it. And the alternative side of that, if it's not written, you don't have it, right? I mean, that's, isn't that, it's overly simplistic, but isn't that where that argument of inherent power comes? Absolutely, Mitch. It's not a, let me ask you the second thing. Then what we've heard is these are executive presidential orders. And there's been discussion of being the chief executive of the country there are certain powers the president has as as he would if he were CEO of a company by saying to those administrative agencies in that branch of the government, I am the CEO and I am directing you to charge this, not charge that. Use your resources this way, not use your resources. Dispatch uh, federal police powers that are under yours or not. I mean, so where does that concept of executive order fit in, or is that part of what you were talking about is implied? You know, it, the first case where this really arose was uh, something that we, we in the constitutional world call Young, the Youngstown Steel case. Um, and during the Korean War, uh, the steel workers threatened to strike. President Truman thought that that was going to be devastating to the war effort. The need for steel and the production of weapons uh, uh, affected the national security interest. And this is on the heels of World War II, remember. Uh, so we're talking about the 1950s. President Truman seized the steel mills. He seized the steel mills in Pennsylvania by executive order. Literally took them over uh, and to prevent the strike and compelled the workers to to the unions to to work. Um, it, and it did not take long for this to get up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in a very very famous decision, talked about this notion of executive power and said, "Hey." When the president does these types of things under this national security interest or under the, the not, I won't call it a guise, but let's call it the presumed authority or defi- self-defined authority to, 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 to execute some, some law, the, the president, when he goes beyond an existing law to do that, is legislating. And, the, and, and legislation and is a power line, You've crossed, crossed over the line. Branch. Exactly. Have you usurped the power of another branch? And, and Justice Jackson, in that same opinion that I referenced earlier, where, where Justice Black said, hey, there's never an instance where we let the president define his power. That's the very notion we fought a very hard-fought revolution against. Michael, Justice Michael? Jackson, yes. Mitch, let me set the table for the issue that's directly related to what's in the news now with respect to the immigration executive order and go back to checks and balances, if I may, Michael, a little bit. Because uh, you're right, Stephen, because that was one of the first discussions in the case that was heard just yesterday. Yeah, yeah, it was. Please tell us, set the table for that because that yeah. does feed so right I, What I'd like to do, Michael, is to introduce it this way. Uh, if you look, and I appreciate your referencing Youngstown Steel, uh, I think that's an important case. And I, I think you're right in citing the fact that the justification for that may have been national security. And I think the point you're making is that 
it shouldn't be unfettered discretion or the term national security needs to be well-defined. It can't just be arbitrarily referenced in, uh, in a magic potion, if you will, or a panacea, right? There's right. got to be a justification. But with respect to what's going on now, right? Um, and if you look historically at past challenges to executive orders, what would you cite to historically that's on par with what's going on now? today in terms of the Ninth Circuit getting inside the tent and looking at merits of President Trump's decision. And, okay. and before you start, my and with a, a government lawyer arguing specifically when asked by the justice on the Ninth Circuit, is this a reviewable action by the president? And his initial answer was no. Essentially, the court has no business looking at that. This is the president's inherent authority or actual authority for national security. Yeah, yeah. so the, the principles that have emerged um, are, are ones where the court looks very skeptically at the president self-defining the executive power in executive orders. Basically, every action that the president takes, uh, the court defines around Congress and Congress's power. And whether Congress is silent, whether Congress has spoken, or whether Congress has done something contrary to the power that the president is attempting to execute. Um, and Stephen, the precedents all revolve around that. There was a point in time where the question of executive order and the power to issue one itself was a subject matter. But a historical precedent and the massive use by executive orders on both sides of politics, both by both presidents and both parties over time, has established them. So the question then becomes boundaries. And that boundary is, is, is defined by the other branches and whether the president is doing something that usurps power from the other branches or that the other branches should be doing. So, Michael, let me just make sure that, because I think that's a great point you've made that those who aren't lawyers may not get. I think all three of us are now agreeing that there's no question that a president has the authority, constitutional authority, to issue executive orders, correct? So that the issuance of the order is not what's a question here, right? Right. Okay. It's just now you've redefined it one step further. It's the boundary from which that executive order has extended. How far can the president go? Because every president since Washington has issued executive As many as they can. I think except for the two that died before they had a chance. So <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Michael, Mitch, let me, let me ask you to hold the thought because we are going out on a break. But again, just to return and to clarify what we want to get into when we come back after the break. Uh, this the notion of unfettered discretion and how executive orders can be tested specifically, I think, is what we should take on when we get back. All right, we're going out on a short break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about executive orders in the recent Ninth Circuit Court case. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. 
We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012, for more information. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we're talking today about the recent executive order and the challenge by the Ninth Circuit and the review by the Ninth Circuit. And we're joined by Professor Michael Cohen. And Michael, Mitch, at the break, we were just talking about this idea of how executive orders are challenged. We've talked about the idea of checks and balances. And uh, Michael, you did a great job setting that up by describing the three branches. And I think we should turn more specifically now to the issue of what kind of scrutiny can be placed by the courts on executive action taken by uh, the commander-in-chief. Sure. So, you know, the commander in chief, um, uh, the, the commander in chief power is is the power most often cited by a president in issuing executive orders and taking action. And it is one of the powers that at least the Supreme Court historically has had the most skepticism of. 
Um, it is under this power that uh, President Roosevelt uh, uh, grabbed and detained over 100,000 Japanese-American citizens, put them in concentration camps, confiscated their property, uh, for which they never have, have really been repaid. Um, and these were American citizens, by the way. These were not uh, people in the country illegally. Um, that case is called Korematsu, and it's still good law, unfortunately. That executive order upheld. I mean, I do have some opinion about it. I think it was wrongly decided. Uh, and and uh, Justice Scalia, who recently died, uh, commented before his death that he also thought Korematsu was wrongly decided, but he said it could happen again. And, and Michael? Yeah. Was the basis there that the, the the justification or the alleged justification of national security was dubious, for lack of a better term? The, the, the justification was, in fact, uh, national security. We were at war with Japan, and uh, apparently, according to President Roosevelt, uh, every Japanese-American uh, in the state of California was a threat to the nation, whether they were three years old or 76 years old or 12 years old, whether they were women or whether they were men. Um, it, it was uh, ab- absolutely, um, a, a, in my, my own view, Stephen, a, a complete constitutional blemish. That is an example, however, of the far reach of executive power. You know, on the other hand, and uh, yeah, just uh, about 10 years later, the Supreme Court said when President uh, Truman tried to s- seize the steel mills for national security under his commander-in-chief authority or his inherently defined power for national security, the Supreme Court said no. <laughs> that's that's way way beyond the the bounds of 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 executive power. Uh, so and and up with the question of the can the court review it? So so you've you've we've defined that the president does have the power to issue the order. Yep. And then the immediate question became who gets to question it? And you were you're talking about what the court decided, but in the the Ninth Circuit here, that that question came up almost immediately, didn't it? It it, it did. It, let me put it this way. How could you not allow the court to decide this? If the president can self-define his or her own power, that power is limitless. You are then now living in a tyranny. If there is no review of the president's ability to self-define its own power, the Constitution is gutless. If there is no ability, true at the end. Oh, so let me. Uh, I find it hard to argue this side of this, but as we know, well, good lawyers can argue either side. Let me just take the other side of that for a second and say, what it appears that the president then tweeted this week, so to to get an idea of what he was thinking when he issued this order, uh, was that all that's true, Michael. But I this on the face of it, this executive order is so within the boundaries of what the president is allowed to do by executive order. That it's a waste of time and therefore merely a political act by any court to step in and try to micromanage this executive order. Well, that's, well, that's, just, just, <laughs> that's just saying that the, the court's role to define the law and say what the law is, isn't the court's role. That's just another way of saying to the court, you, you have no authority under Article 3 to tell me what the law is. And this is the fundamental underpinning, Mitch, of the Constitution. If any one of these branches decides not to follow the other, if one of those branches comes up and says, you know what, I'm the president, I'm the equal branch of government, screw you, court, I'm not going to follow what you say, you don't have any authority to define the law in my action, I'm the president, 
I'm an equal branch of a government, go pound sand, then we might as well rip the document up, throw it in the Potomac River, and watch it flow down the Chesapeake Bay into the Atlantic Ocean and sink with the rest of this nation. This whole nation depends on each branch of government understanding their role and delicately respecting the integrity of our 250 plus years living under this balance. Okay, let's if say balance, okay, if the balance say goes away, that. and that's why, Mitch, that, that's why people define these things as constitutional crisis. Right. I get what that means. Let me ask this. But let's say so. Seven presidents, though. Let me push back a little more. Seven previous presidents used the specific law that the that President Trump referred to, the Immigration and Naturalization Act, I believe, specifically cited to that law that says, and the president can exclude people if there's a finding of national security and danger. Seven Mm -hmm. presidents, Democrats did it, Republicans did it. He goes. I am just, not only is it within the four corners of this document, within my inherent authority, I'm just the eighth president to do exactly the same thing. What's your problem? But that's that's what the president did, Mitch. If the president had gone into court and said, hey, judges, this is why I'm within the bounds of the law, and made those kinds of arguments, that could be compelling. And in fact, a lot of constitutional scholars, myself included, believe that the president may indeed have the executive power to do exactly what he did here. And but Biden, he Biden. went into court and he said, hey, judges, you have no authority to tell me how to do my job. Mm-hmm. That's different. That's, a, that's what's a constitutional crisis. That and then it goes to president Stephen's thinks. part, because that that, uh, I do want to loop back, because Stephen, you talked about standing, and that becomes a critical issue here. It, it was not only... Do you not have the authority to question me? There, it really starts that you don't have the authority to get into court, into court to question me. The judges don't even get a chance because you shouldn't have accepted the case to begin with, right? Isn't that your point, Stephen, on standing? It, it, it was in, initially, and I actually wanted to take the discussion back to U.S. District Judge James Robart's decision, Michael, because let's let's frame it and try to track what's happened. Because uh, we may well get to a point where we see merits discussed transparently, openly, uh, mm-hmm. once we get past this. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to make bold predictions as to how this will play out ultimately. But let's just set it up from the perspective of the mechanics here. So uh, U.S. District Judge James Robart <clears throat> made a decision out of the state of Washington and must have found that there was standing which is one of the threshold requirements before a matter can actually be heard, correct? Correct. And we've talked about that before for the non-lawyers. Standing literally means that, that you have the authority to stand in that court and make the argument. Right. It means there's a case or controversy. The Article 3 of the Constitution only gives the courts power to hear actual cases or controversies. And that require, that's, that's what standing means. It means that there's an actual case or controversy, not an advisory decision to be, to be, to be made. And then, Michael, to, to sort of critique what happened, and I think a lot of our listeners may have actually listened to this argument, and it probably helps to share with our listeners that this was streamed live, which was pretty fascinating. It was done telephonically, which, Michael, is kind of an interesting issue, too. It was an emergency session, right? Right. 
So it did, it did surprise me that the lawyers didn't show up. Uh, you know, even uh, for something like this uh, the, to do it telephonically. But nonetheless, it it uh, pulled off pretty well. Yeah, I agree with you. Actually, I I, I was surprised that they didn't make personal uh, appearances also. Um, so. As far as the arguments and the cadence of the arguments, it, it looked like the, the justices got to the issue of merits really quickly, in my opinion. And there were sharp challenges to, uh, it would have been the Department of Justice lawyer, August uh, Flinchy, where he was pressed, hard pressed, frankly, to come up with a basis and a reason or a nexus behind uh, President Trump's decision. And, and I thought that the merit discussion became a little bit sort of unbridled there at some point. What, what are your thoughts? Wait a minute, I, Michael, before you say it, Stephen, walk everybody through as a, as a procedure professor. So why is merits an issue? Because there really were steps. So there was a, a case filed. Then there was a te- request, immediate request for a temporary injunction. And then the appeal was on the base of asking for a stay of that injunction, right? So that's, that's right. So tell a little bit, why, why do those distinctions matter in this question of merit? So the decision out of the state of Washington by Judge James Robart was to issue a temporary restraining order, which preserves the status quo of a matter until it can be decided with more detail, with more robust discussion. And there's and certain things you need to bring to get one of those, right? There's What are the standards of getting a temporary restraining order? There's got to be a demonstration of urgency and a need that really establishes that the litigants or the parties cannot wait. There's more. There's an urgency factor that's got to be established. And that's there a present danger to somebody to have an immediate injury, right? Right, right. And then there's usually a reference to likelihood of success, and the outcome, uh, but it's largely emergency-based, and I defer to Michael on that. Michael, do you have, I mean, did I frame that rather accurately in terms of a TRO? You did. The, the standard for an injunction is to balance uh, three factors, generally speaking, um, the, the urgency that you all talk about framed as irreparable harm. Um, the the merits the the court will look at whether or not there you know is a meritorious claim and the likelihood of success and also the public welfare which uh, is something that folks often leave off of the analysis but is an important part of the analysis particularly here. There okay, so are Jordan was on Washington State to initially prove that right so that's what right. Steve was walking through the process so right so that they show up in court they're asking. Judge Robards to f- make those three findings, right, Stephen? That's right. And Mitch and Michael, the only other thing I'd add to that, and I, I hope you both agree, is that the TRO in spirit is an equitable type remedy. That's absolutely right. Stephen hit it right in, in preserving the. If the court finds that people are being hurt, then the court may be very inclined to preserve the status quo, to unhurt them <laughs> until the matter can be decided. And that's really what ju- Judge Robart did. He looked at this and, and Washington came in with real harm. It came in with families that had been separated. It came in with people who were un- unable to actually pursue their livelihood because of the travel bans. Okay, all right, so all we get this evidence get showing harm, uh, showing hurt. I know, we get it. So then, Stephen, then what happens? So, so the judge issues the TRO, then how does it get to the appellate court? Yeah, so now, so then the, the Department of Justice then moved for a stay to challenge 
the the um, efficacy or the decision to issue the TRL. So, so they're not step- saying throw it out. They're not saying you're not going to get the hearing in however many days it takes. They're just saying the immediate temporary restraining order should be stayed. That's right. Okay. And right. that's really what was before the Ninth Circuit then. Just that's that right. Issue, right? And, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then once again, I want to I want to tout the value of listening to these arguments. And I appreciate, Michael, you're referencing the importance of listening. Lawyers probably don't do that enough, right? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I mean, seriously, I mean, Mitch was, you know, Mitch got an email out to compliment your efforts at school in the Heisler Moot Court, and I think it was really a really good thing to do because uh, the. Following the exchange is fascinating, but just going to the issue and how the the Ninth Circuit, it was a three-judge panel. Judge uh, Friedland was serving as uh, presiding judge, Judge Clifton, who I think, is he based in Hawaii, Michael? I think he is, right? I know one of them was in Hawaii. One of them, I think, is in California. The other one, I think, is in Arizona. Arizona, right. Yeah. So, uh, the the action quickly centered on on merits, and I wanted to get your thoughts, Michael, on on just just how quickly it turned to merits and and the pressing of August Flinchy, the DOJ attorney, to come up with justifications. Stephen, he's going to have to do that after the break. But before he does that, I think I want you to stay, take one more step, though, because when it went to the appeal on the stay, the burden shifted. Right? You talked about the the Washington State had to present the argument for all of these three steps that Michael said to get a temporary restraining order. But for a stay, didn't it shift over? Now the government had to prove that the same three emergency issues were there to get a stay put in? That is, that is true, Mitch. Good point. Okay. When we come back, we'll pick back up on the exchange between the justices and the attorneys in the challenge to President Trump's executive order. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. 
They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are discussing the recent challenge to the executive order by President Trump and the Ninth Circuit's uh, potential decision. We are awaiting that decision, of course, and we've got the benefit of having Professor Michael Cohen join us today to add to the constitutional dimension discussion to this case. And Michael, Mitch, before the break, we were talking about the idea of what I had framed as how quickly the justices, and I think led primarily by the presiding justice, Friedland, how quickly the discussion turned to merits and how the government lawyer, the Department of Justice lawyer, August Flinchy, was really pressed to come up with a basis and a nexus to justify President Trump's decision. Yeah, Stephen. I mean, I think what's, you know, going back to a, a really good point that you raised um, among many was the fact that this is an appeal from a TRO. A TRO, by federal rule, only lasts 10 days. Then there's a hearing on a preliminary injunction motion. So when this came up, the the president has essentially appealed a TRO without waiting for the preliminary injunction hearing where the president could have presented evidence to support his executive order. And one thing that happened in the Ninth Circuit argument that I found compellingly interesting um, was an examination uh, uh, of the government lawyer on the evidence supporting the executive order. And so you're now deep into the merits, as you suggest. But the court wasn't jumping deep into the merits, perhaps, to decide the whole matter, as, as popular opinion may think. They were jumping into the merits to kind of understand why the president appealed the TRO instead of waiting five, ten days and presenting evidence to support the executive order. And the, and the justices pushed the government on that. They basically said, hey, look, what's the evidence that supports this executive order? And the government lawyer started citing a whole bunch of stuff. And one judge asked, where is that in the record? And there was no answer. There it's was uh, the record. Radio silence. Nothing. Radio <laughs> silence. And the, and the, and the, and and then the, the follow-on question was: You appealed a TRO. You presented no evidence 
None. You you went into a federal courthouse, and in uh, you know what the standards are, and you presented zero evidence to support the president's executive order. You can't so again, now come to. They're a, not going to get their hearing. It's that they wanted it immediately in an emergency, rather than waiting five to ten days to get a full hearing on it. That's right. Your- the, the government behaved like Trump. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it, it's completely compulsory. It, 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 it's completely reactionary. It, it's not thoughtful. It's not measured. They didn't have their ducks in a row. They didn't present any of it. They did not follow the rule of law in any respect. And they basically went into court and said, you can't even decide this because this is the president's action. That's just not a good place to be. They could have waited 10 days, made their case. You know, uh, 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 you know, Trump's whole view is that in these 10 days and every second that goes by while this executive uh, order has been suspended that the nation's going to blow up. And I, you know, I have no idea what's going to happen. So let me, let me ask you a question on, on that because it, this is where it's a bit surreal. We actually have a comment from the president subsequent to the hearing that said every single day that this court has stayed my order, has put the temporary restriction on this protection, the country's in greater danger. People come in here with the intent to do harm. Does any of that conversation, because this came up in the discussion for the Ninth Circuit as well, does any of that conversation have a bearing when the president says those things between now and let's, let's assume it goes back and 10 days there's a full hearing? Does any of that come back in? Usually we're, we're expected to have the discussion limited to what's done in the court. Well, you know, you guys are both prosecutors. How is that going to play out? We 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 hope we hope in our our history that we are a nation of laws, and that doesn't mean that the law always gets it right. It doesn't mean that there's perfect justice, but it does mean that the rule of law matters. And of course, those kinds of comments matter if the president can sustain that case based on evidence. But you don't get to be a president and say whatever you want, and that have then that be taken as fact to define your own power. That's tyranny. That's exactly what the Constitution says you don't get to do. Michael, Michael let, me, let me jump in on to respond to Mitch's question because I interpreted it to mean can out-of-court statements made, I'm going back into the evidence classroom, Mitch, if you don't right. mind. Right, no, that's exactly my question. Because I think, I think you were coaxing the issue of whether or not out-of-court statements made by the president that are not really made at the rostrum, so to speak, or in a formal right. setting can come back to haunt him. And, of course, I can't help but think about prolific tweeting. I don't know if that was in your wheelhouse when you thought about that, but that's a great question. And, you know, there were references by attorney Purcell, who was arguing that he's the state solicitor general for Washington, where he actually referenced some anecdotal uh, evidence. And right. But he put, it in. And and down. He, he put it in. It was, it was important in this sense, Stephen. The, the, the state of Washington's case basically in part, in substantial part, was the executive order violates the First Amendment to the Constitution because it was... It, it was intended. It was intended to be a ban on Muslims, right? And, and that's that's a religious persecution that this nation forbids. This nation was founded on people who fled religious persecution. You don't get to turn around and do it. 
And the president said, no, 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 no. This is a, a national security issue because these nations are dangerous. Before that, of course, the, nation, you know, the president had gone through campaign promises and tweeted constantly that he planned to ban Muslims from the nation, ban Muslims from the nation. So the, the, the intent to violate the First Amendment, the intent behind this order became relevant. And the state of Washington did present out-of-court statements by the president to show his intent was religious persecution. Well, so, you that, might, so you might wonder, how does that come in? Why does that come in? That comes in because it is a statement by the defendant called an admission. Okay, let me, let, let me, let me offer another view on that one. All right, uh, not that we need to cross swords seriously over the issue, but the, the references to Muslim bans, many of them were made on the campaign trail. Right. Not, not while, while President Trump was actually in office. Yes. Okay, so let's say there may be a distinction there, but Stephen, what about this week? If he were your client, if he, no, he wouldn't be your client. If he were your witness and you woke up every day to have your primary witness that you were going to put on in the hearing in six to ten days and proceeded to have a week of tweets about the case specifically, would you be preparing to hear those in evidence at the next hearing? Yeah, yeah, so they're out-of-court statements, and I think Michael's referenced one of the means by which they could become admissible in a court of law, and it would be potentially an, an admission by a party, and certainly the president would be a party. So that might be the mechanism by which out-of-court statements come in. Uh, my question would be, are the statements made in an official capacity and I'm, I'm, I think that Michael's going to tell me that everything the president says is in an official capacity. Would I be exactly. right? Exactly. And I think that I'd be just, to, I, I, that is my answer, Stephen. Yeah. And, and I would be just as concerned, frankly, that, that to, to show where this president is, that while waiting for this decision on the rule of law, where they could have approached it differently, the president has also decided to tweet to personally attack the judges that have been involved, all four of them in a very personal way, saying that it's all politics, that they're biased, that the judiciary as a whole is a farce, and, um, uh, uh, and, and, and that all of the judges are against them. Not only is that somewhat psychotic, um, uh, but uh, you, you have one branch of government to go back where we started. You now have a president who is going over to another branch of government saying that you're full of shit and I'm not going to listen to anything you do and everything you do is political and it's against me. That, that's just pitting the, the, the articles of the Constitution together unnecessarily. And it's you know never, never a good place to be. And I think that's what people are most uh, nervous about here is that the president seems to be acting in a manner that either by design or complete recklessness every day is putting tension on the piece of paper that has governed us effectively for 250 years. And there's no reason for it. It's unnecessary. The president so, so, would be accomplishing so species so so without this. So he's, he's actually uh, forcing the hand of the courts, and, and we're going to see it. But we only have a few minutes left. But I do want to say that we've, it's been easy to spend this. We could spend this day talking about the Ninth Circuit case. 
but it's not the only executive order that's come through. I, mean, I think we're going to have to have similar conversations, and there's likely to be court cases about things such as sanctuary cities, another case where the federal versus the state are going to come into play. That, that's going to be an equally challenging constitutional issue, don't you think, Michael? I, I do, Mitch, and 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 you know, I I know we we've only got a few minutes left, but it it raises a really important point here, which is this is not all the president's doing. The, the Constitution is designed to safeguard against this type of president. And by the way, Trump isn't the first lunatic in my view. And that, yes, that's a Cohen characterization. I'm sure he would disagree with it, right? But he isn't. Let, let's just put it this way. Uh, Trump is not the first president of the United States to have a very expansive view of his power under Article 2. The job and the place for that safeguard in the Constitution is Congress. Congress can say no. Congress has the absolute legislative power to speak by its own action, by legislation, on anything that the president does. And this Congress is a, an institution, in my view, that is just sitting idly by and watching the Constitution disintegrate. It is not doing a darned thing. And, well, I, don't, very, and I don't put do this on the back. Democrats. I put it on the institution. It is up to Congress to, to fence in the president and make this country work effectively. And I do question whether the institution actually has the ability to do it. Well, I think that's, and that's a great loop back to where we started this conversation to remember that it is a balance of power. And you're, you're exactly right. We spent the entire hour talking about the court versus the executive. And the very fact that in this entire hour, it's not until the end that we remind Congress to wake up and say they are the third branch of government that has a role to play. No, no. Instead, instead, watch Mitch McConnell walk around Washington, D.C. with a silly grin on his face while the entire words in Article 2 of the Constitution begin to uh, evaporate uh, until they become nothing. So well, I would say, and uh, yeah, just to balance that out, that as you said, it's not a Republican or Democrat thing, and it's not only Mitch McConnell. There's leadership on both sides of the House that need to step up and exert our expected responsibilities from Congress to draft laws, present laws, discuss those laws, and if and protect us. That's and right. There are Republicans as we. As we brace for the dismount here, because we're coming up on the uh, end of the segment, I think we should share with our listeners that this is not a topic that's going away, and we will be looking forward to tracking this. Well, that's exactly right. And and, and let me just throw a couple things out, because I think we're going to have to pick this back up. I mentioned sanctuary cities. I've, we've only got a few seconds left. But I would encourage everyone to read these executive orders. They're available online. They can be found and that's an important part of this lesson. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law, a reminder that you can hear an archive of today's program at voiceamerica.com business channel and at wagnerandwinnick.com. As we remind you each week on this show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people. But I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. Oye.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to Oye.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 